Have you ever wondered what it's like for other people to go through a life event? Is it the same for them? Is it different? And how? My name is Dr. Nikkel Rogers-Webb. I'm a psychologist. I'm doing a podcast with my mom, Dr. Elsa Rogers, Dean of General Studies. And we're going to be talking to different people about what it's like to go through a single life event at the same time. Welcome to part two of our interview with Dr. Shelley Desitaj Wong about germs, genomics, and generating medications. If you haven't listened to part one, you definitely want to do that before you catch up with us here in part two. In this episode, we talk more about vaccine development, viral mutation, and what the previous pandemic was like back in the early 1900s. Take a listen. So something else that I was thinking when you mentioned that what we're seeing in terms of symptoms here is a little bit different from what they saw in China, probably because of slight mutations, that takes me back to what you said about when they guess what proteins are going to be on the outside of the flu virus in the fall. Is that part of what is going to make developing a vaccine so challenging? All these little mutations that are happening. So, yeah. So, and every virus, so different viruses have diff- different mutation rates. Like no one tries to develop a vaccine for the common cold. There's so many of them. They change so fast. <clears throat> right, that's why we still deal with the common cold. <laughs> I wonder. <Right. laughs> right, 21st century common cold. So for the, for the flu vaccine, we know that there, there's the hemagglutinin protein um, so we, what we're seeing a lot in the media, we're seeing um, an image of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, and we're seeing those, what we call spike proteins, which are very predominant on the outside. Um, so for the flu vaccine, there are actually, for influenza, there are actually two proteins, but those proteins have different versions. Uh. So we always know that there's going to be hemagglutinin. We always know what two proteins, but what version of the two? Okay. <laughs> that, that, that becomes, um, that becomes the, the guesswork, essentially. So, and the guess is, it's an educated, the reason I said earlier it's an educated guess is because they look at, if we isolate influenza from patients around the world, what are the versions of the protein that we're seeing most predominant? And based on that, we're going to make a guess and how, you know, how as infective does it seem to be? And so it's more than just is the because pro- the protein is always there, mm-hmm. but it's what version of the protein. Mm-hmm. Now, if you think about a protein as being, let's pretend a protein is a ball and antibodies are going to be developed to some part of that ball. So if you think about protein 3D structures being a ball, we don't always know which side of the ball is going to elicit the strongest immune response. So if you take your hand and you make a fist and you say, okay, this is the outside of a protein, um, is the area where the thumb is? going to elicit the strongest response so that I make a lot of antibodies? Or is it going to be the area where the knuckle is? Or is it going to be the area where the the fingers are touching the palm? We don't necessarily know up front. So this is what we call the most immunogenic. What's going to elicit a really strong immune response? You don't always know that off the top. 
Mm-hmm. So there's a certain amount of, um, so that's another area, just because you know what the protein is, doesn't mean you know for sure that you're going to get a strong response because the body may react differently to different regions of the protein. So you have to find that little region that's going to be the most antigenic. And so one of the things that's really great right now is to see how many companies are working together in partnership and sharing information Mm -hmm. so that we have the best chance possible because no one company is doing everything. Mm. But what's really different now um, is that the companies are being really, really transparent as they learn more about the virus, as they learn more about, hey, you know what, this region, that wasn't very good, didn't, didn't see much of an immune response. So the sharing of that information means everyone's benefiting from everyone's info, everyone's moving as fast as they can. Um, what they're doing is they are compressing significantly the timelines that are involved. So generally, um, when you're making, so basically what they're doing by compressing the timelines, the companies, some companies have started already to manufacture, to invest in manufacturing large amounts of vaccine in case it works. Because if it works, then they'll have it manufactured. Is this risky? Yes. If it doesn't work, they've lost Mm -hmm. their investment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But if you think about from, uh, you know, from the the citizen on the street perspective, um, here I am at home. I'm very fortunate. I'm able to work from home. My husband's able to work from home. We got the juggle, you know. Google Classroom um, with the five-year-old every morning, but we're in a really good situation because we're able to continue working, Mm -hmm. right? And we have a place um, and and we're able to pay our bills, et cetera. But we also want to start going out again and see people again and, and, you know, see friends, et cetera. And one of my girlfriends came over to visit and, um, you know, we had that driveway visit. She stopped, came out the car, and we stood far away and talked. <laughs> and, um, so we won that. So could you imagine where a company announces success? We have efficacy. Our vaccine worked. And then you tell the public, oh, you got to wait another um, six to eight months while we produce enough so that you can get it yeah yeah right right but that's that's six to eight more months that people could potentially get infected and get sick Ah. right even though we have a vaccine so there's been this decision by the whole industry that they're going to go at risk Mm -hmm. for the manufacturer everyone's vaccine isn't going to work Mm-hmm. Nobody knows who's it's going to work. <laughs> so these companies are taking risks. Um, the ones that are looking at drugs, there's um, three, I call it the three fronts. We're doing pretty well on diagnostics. There's room for more, but we're doing pretty well with regard to the diagnostics. So we need to be able to test individuals to find out do they have a yes or no. Vaccines, 
we want to be able to give vaccines so that we could prevent people from getting it so we can keep our healthy population healthy. In the event that you do get it, we want to be able to treat you. So we want to have medicines, drugs that can be used to treat patients um, that have the illness. Right now, some of the early drugs that have been tried were antiviral drugs that were already existing at companies. So one, one of the drugs that was tried, it was tried for Ebola. It didn't show efficacy, but they knew it was safe and there's enough similarity. Like, okay, it's an antiviral. Let's see if it can work here. Mm -hmm. So, but to have a drug that you already know something about the safety, um, that, that's easily six years that they saved. That's, right? That's easily, um, you know, six to eight years saved in terms of here's a disease. Um, we, we know the protein sequence. Okay, great. Maybe this protein is the one we want to make a drug. Maybe we want to have a drug that binds to um, that protein on the outside of the virus. So if we have something that binds to the protein on the outside of the virus, then the virus can't get in. Or maybe we want to have a drug that will bind a receptor on the cell so the virus can't get in. But if we bind a receptor on the cell, what's the normal function of that receptor? And then therefore, what side effect do we bring about by having a drug uh, that binds that? Yeah, what, what's not getting in, in in addition to the virus? Yes. Yeah. And then what are the compensatory mechanisms, right? So if you have, if you have, uh, so um, there's this system within our cells. So the SARS-CoV-2 has been binding um, a receptor called the AT1 receptor. And that's part of what we call the renin angiotensin pathway. And it's involved in um, blood pressure, changing the, the diameter of the blood vessels. So you narrow the blood vessels down, um, the blood pressure is increased, you widen the blood vessels, so you have a greater area in which the blood can flow, um, the pressure of the blood in the greater area decreases. So there are drugs that treat blood pressure by modifying, yeah. by binding that receptor. Um, so does it make sense to target that? So there are some groups looking at doing research saying, hey, you know what, maybe this would be a good target. Because if we could prevent the virus from binding that receptor, mm -hmm. we can decrease the ability of the virus to actually get into the cells. Um, there are other drugs that are gonna look at, okay, once the virus binds, it usually delivers its genetic material into the cell. And then the virus has its own enzyme that it uses for that first round of replication to make a copy. So can we target that enzyme in the virus? So lots right. of different points of intervention. Lots of different points of intervention. Um, and generally, you're looking at all these different points of intervention and you're asking, what is the protein? What is the molecule that I'm trying to target? And then, you know, maybe you're a large drug company and you've got millions of compounds in your library right now. You still have to go through and screen them. Hmm. Wow. Right? Oh. You, can do, you can do some work because you can say, well, you know what? 
a lot of these compounds look similar to each other, so maybe we'll pick out a couple of those. So we'll screen compound families from within our library, but you still have to screen them. Right. And then once you've screened them, some of them might bind, but if they bind, do they inhibit? Do they bind tightly enough? They bind tightly enough? Do they have an inhibitory effect? How good is that inhibition? Because if it's a 10% inhibition, that may not be enough to move the needle. You might need to get 80%, 90% inhibition for it to make a difference. Hmm. So um, you have you know, the whole idea of where am I gonna, what, what am I gonna target in the disease or in the, in the virus? What am I gonna target? Do I have compounds that can bind to it? Do I, do I have, if those compounds bind? Do I see the desired effect? And then how am I gonna measure that desired effect? That means I have to have some sort of system going where I can get the virus to infect cells mm. and see if I'm making a difference. And now think about the people who are working in those companies mm. who are now having to work with everyone's, we're all in social distancing and staying away as much as possible and being careful. But there are many people who by nature of the job, the healthcare workers by nature of their job are encountering patients with the virus and caring for them. And the researchers, some of them are working with large amounts of the virus in an effort to find a way. And when a company goes with a drug and they wanna to go to the FDA, it's a million dollars to file your application. Wow. You know, like how you pay application fees, non-refundable application fees when you apply to a college. Mm -hmm. It's a million, every year it changes. But on average, it's a million dollars to file the application that says, hey, I would like to check to see if this drug is safe. So you've already spent all your money and spent all your time. Um, the cost of a clinical trial, just to prove a drug is safe on average, it's $5 million to the company on average. Just so that explains a lot as to why drugs are so expensive to the um, consumer. So there's, it is on average, the average drug takes 15 years from the time you say, oh, I want to work on this area and I have an idea for what protein we can target. If you make it all the way through that you have a drug that's approved on average, average is 15 years. So the fact that we are like, okay, can we get this like, in a couple of months is really pretty ludicrous. For a drug, so that's why I'm saying the drugs that we're seeing tested right now are drugs that were already existing, had mm -hmm. already been through, in some cases, trials. But anyone who has an idea for a new drug now, even if they compress the timeline as much as they can, eight years? Oh my gosh. Wow. And so that's, that's why the first line has been, let's take the drugs we already have and see if any of them work. Makes sense. Because that's going to be your shortest horizon, right? And then the next horizon um, is these vaccines. Because you can get a vaccine. Um, one of the things about the RNA vaccines that I talked about, where you're using a vaccine and you have the, some genetic material in the vaccine that you're using, and you're depending on the cell, to use that genetic material to make the viral protein, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. There aren't any approved RNA or DNA vaccines yet. Mm. So they've worked well in animals. Some of them so far haven't worked that well in testing in humans. 
So, but it's not like it's an approach that we can point to different vaccines that are on the market and say, yeah, that vaccine, that vaccine, that vaccine, they all work. They'll be fast, they're much faster, and it's less risk because you're not asking the company, the people who work at the company developing it, you're not asking them to work with live vaccine, live virus, mm -hmm. <laughs> to make the vaccine. Um, but, you know, a year, two years, but we don't know, we hope it's going to work. <laughs> wow. and, but we don't know that for a fact. Even normally you would test a drug in animals. Right. You will test a drug. If you're doing a drug, you usually do some animal studies to prove that it's safe. You do at least two different species. Um, what are the animals that are going to get infected? So far, the only thing we know for animals with the coronavirus that they'll actually have some sort of symptoms of ferrets and cats. Okay. So, wow. so just, you know, there's, there's a lot that's being done to try to compress the timeline, because essentially what they're trying to do, typical vaccine is four years, they're trying to squeeze four years down to a year. The typical drug is 15, they're trying to squeeze 15 years down to yeah, three, five. <laughs> <laughs> Which makes you realize, you know, that it's just, a, it's a huge task, so it's down to us to yeah, and be as safe and careful as possible. Um, we, 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 we're hearing a lot of, uh, theories about how this virus left uh, China and infected the rest of the world. One of them is that somehow the virus was um, deliberately uh, manufactured and let loose. Another is that it escaped from a lab. How possible is that? So based on what I have seen, so I have not looked at the evidence. So there are some people saying it escaped from a lab because there happens to be a virology institute in Wuhan. Mm -hmm. um, we don't know that they were doing experiments on coronaviruses. We, so let me think. In 2018, so there was a paper published in Nature, um, which is a very highly regarded scientific journal. Um, I don't remember who published the paper. What I do remember about the paper, it was a group that studied whether or not there was potential for coronaviruses that infect bats to jump to humans. And they did some studies to see if they can get a virus to go into cells growing in a Petri dish in vitro, right? Now, if you, as I talked about earlier, that you can see sequence, if you compare the sequence of the virus that that group, the changes they made to what was in Wuhan, it's not the same thing. Okay. So I think it unlikely that it was engineered and released. Mm -hmm. And while I think it's unlikely that it was engineered and released, I have not sat down and looked at the sequence of everything that's available. Um, I think it unlikely, but is, do we have the capability, the scientific technological capability to do something like that? The capability exists. Do I think that that's the case? I don't know. I don't think so. But at the end of the day, I don't know. Hmm. So kind of shifting gears slightly, because I'm listening to how much work is done for 
um, the development of a vaccine. But something that has, I don't know when all of this started, but there is now this um, growing community of people who are afraid of vaccines. And I guess knowing what you know about sequencing and how um, careful people are, what do you think about that? Because when I, when I think about it, yes, there are risks to any kind of medication or treatment, um, whether it's a medical treatment, psychological treatment, anything. Mm -hmm. um, but I guess what are your thoughts about the fact that people have worked for decades to eradicate certain things and then all of a sudden there is this groundswell of fear of you know the progress that's been made yeah so so i'm a i believe in vaccines i'm, I'm fully vaccinated my kids are fully vaccinated <laughs> that's our mind um, yeah so i'm i also some people there are some individuals who have suffered side effects from vaccines um it's very few i think that in large part, the swell of anti-concern um, with regard to vaccines, um, some of it is about, some of it, a large part of it is driven by some erroneous reports of a link to autism and vaccines. Wasn't that paper rescinded? Yes, it was, but not many people realized that paper was rescinded. Uh -huh. So a large part of it is that link. Now, when the other thing with autism is that very often you don't see symptoms early on. So the onset of symptoms tends to overlap with about the time when your kid gets, you know, their one-year vaccine, their 18-month vaccine, their two-year vaccines, you can't make a firm diagnosis of autism until a child is five, right? So a lot of the time people begin to see shifts in their children's behavior and you're looking for a correlation. And one of the things you could point to for a correlation is while well, they had this vaccine, but it could it, the paper was rescinded. It could just be coincidence. The other part of it is in the past, there were excipients. Um, an excipient is a component that's not active. So anytime we're talking about drugs, so like if you, if you go to the, if you go to your cabinet right now and you happen to have acetaminophen in there, and you take a pill, acetaminophen is not the only thing that's in the pill. Acetaminophen is the active ingredient, API, active pharmaceutical ingredient. Everything else is an excipient. It has a slightly sweet taste on the tongue. There's probably some sort of sugar in there. There's probably starch. You make up stuff to make the pill. Those are excipients. At one point in time, there was a mercury-based um, chemical called timorosol that was in some vaccines. So you say to someone, yes, take this vaccine, and they go look, and they're like, oh, mercury, you want me to inject? <laughs> you want to inject uh -huh. some form of mercury? Um, mm -hmm. Vaccines haven't used timorosol in a long time, but there is that history there. So it's an imperfect sort of situation, and sometimes people re react, their body reacts badly, but by and large, that is not the case for most people. 
it's not the case for most people. So like some vaccines, are, if you have a virus that you're engineered and growing and you're growing it in eggs, anyone who's allergic to eggs should not have that vaccine. Yes. Right. Um, so there are situations where a particular vaccine is not a good fit for someone. And there are situations where you don't know. So for example, um, my son, when he had the chickenpox vaccine, he straight up like had like, I counted, I remember counting, I was very concerned. He broke out and he had about 15, 20 little things that actually looked like chickenpox. Oh. Yeah. So me being me, I'm like, he's not going anywhere because <laughs> he's not going to daycare. Right. Um, and at the time, you know, the, the pediatrician was like, oh, you know, sometimes that happens. It's okay. And I'm thinking, uh, no, this was not one of the things in the piece of paper you gave me. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. This is not one of the things you said could happen, but was on the little piece of paper that I said, okay, yes, I have, I'm informed. Um, nonetheless, um, as far as I am, as far as I can see, he was not harmed by it. But I could see someone saying that can cause you to lose trust. Mm-hmm. You know, you you you're vaccinating your child. How you're built, emotionally, psychologically, you feel bad about vaccinating your child when you see them screaming in the pediatrician's office. Yeah, it's not a pretty picture. It's not a pretty picture. <laughs> And then you take them home and some, some of them develop fevers, some of them get swelling, and it's all the immune response at work. It's all of the things you want the immune response. You want the body to do that so that they can defend against infections later on. But if you've lost trust and you're saying, look, you, you, you didn't tell me everything that could happen. Mm-hmm. Or, you know what, something bad did happen. Yeah. Right. And I think there's a basis of loss of trust. I think loss of trust is a huge basis um, for folks who are thinking in terms of anti-vaccination. But it's, um, you know, a lot of these illnesses, we've forgotten how severe they are. Mm -hmm. And I see in a generation. Right. And at the same time, I mean, having grown up in Trinidad and Tobago, did I get measles? Yes. Did I get mumps? Yes. Did I get rubella? Yes. We didn't have a vaccine for those things. They didn't exist yet. Mm. Was I okay? Yes. I remember when my mom, I remember when my brother had mumps. And he just like didn't get out of bed at all. Wow. And my mom was running back and forth with bags of ice. I had never seen anyone use bags of ice for a fever before. Mm-hmm. But she ran back and forth with bags of ice. Um, our neighbor was a nurse. The neighbor came over. <laughs> Mm. Um, yeah, so, you know, you can get different degrees of severity with different diseases. It's not something to play with because the last thing you want is, um, to have your child or your adult, because some of the vac- the folks who are not vaccinated don't get exposed until they're adults, mm-hmm. right? Um, and the last thing you want is to have someone exposed to some, and, and, be permanently harmed or worse yet die from something that they could have been protected from. Yeah. Yeah. But I really think that a lot of the folks who are against vaccination, they don't see the risk benefit ratio Mm -hmm. in the same way the broader society sees it. 
they have a different perception of their risk benefit ratio. They're weighing, they don't see it the same way. They see it very differently. Yeah, makes sense. Mm. Yeah. Well, I could probably talk to you for hours and hours because this is so fascinating <laughs> and there's so much that I don't know, but I'm also mindful of your time um, and that you've given us a lot. Um, so mom, did you want to ask her our, our usual like hidden question that we ask everybody when they come yeah. on? Yes, a hidden yeah. question. Um, yes. It's a fun one, probably. Okay. Really, if you had the opportunity to go back to speak to your 15-year-old self, what would you tell her? Oh, okay. Calm down. <laughs> 50. Um, calm down. You're going to be okay. Take some time to have fun. It's not all about work. You work very hard. Take a little time to play. Learn to balance the work and the play. This is going to be a key skill. It's funny that you asked that as a hidden question because I wrote a letter to my, I participated in a project called Letters to Our Younger Selves oh. um, last year. And so a group of all of the authors, we grew up in Trinidad and Tobago. And we wrote, the most famous among us is Shaka Hislop, um, who was the goalie for the Trinidad and Tobago soccer team that went to the World Cup. We all wrote letters to our younger selves and we published a collection of letters. Oh. And um, the book is available in Trinidad and Tobago and on Amazon. What's the name of it? Um, my Story, My Secrets, letters to, our younger, letters to My Younger Self. Very cool. Yeah. So I would say, learn to balance. Learn to balance. Value your emotional needs as strongly as you value your desire for education, as strongly um, value your relationships. Don't think that academia and education is everything. It's a part of it. So learn that balance of valuing your relationship needs and your emotional needs together with your educational needs. Learn to meet them all. Wow. Very good advice. Yes. <laughs> Yes. You know, um, funny, and Nikhil was talking, we may not use this as part of the recording, but Nikhil was talking to Lynn, um, I think this was Wednesday, and we asked him the same question. And it's interesting that we all seem to focus on the educational part of our, uh, let's say, um, our maturity, in that it is important that you have the education that in most cases, we tend to think that perhaps that's the end all and we don't necessarily recognize that there are so many other parts of ourselves yes. that we tend to forget that. Yep. Very, very true. And it's funny. I had someone say to me, yeah, you and the woman in your family, you just go out and do everything. You just do everything. You act like there's nobody around to help you do anything. You just go and do everything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> It, I think it's really interesting when you're isolated and by isolated, I mean like you and your spouse who did not grow up in the family that we grew up in because in our family, it's like, well, yeah, push, push. You're tired, push some more. And so we get married and have, you know, these um, mirrors back to ourselves that are saying, what, what are you doing? <laughs> 
And so actually, it's funny because the other day I'm like, oh, you know, I, and we want to start a vegetable garden now. And uh, I'm like, yeah, I need to get some lumber and I need to get it cut. And I'm like, oh, wait, is this one of those areas? Where- <laughs> right? <laughs> yes, maybe. <laughs> but this was so much fun. Thank you so much for inviting me to chat. Yeah, this I was really fantastic. This. I mean, well, yeah, it was fun, but it was also so informative. And so thank you for sharing all your knowledge with us. Oh, thank you so much. It, it was really fascinating because there's so much that we don't know that goes on behind the scenes that I think that you're sharing that information with us will be helpful to many people. So you'll answer a number of questions that um, I'm sure many people have. Yeah. I didn't have anyone to, um, to ask. So that's great. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. I'm passionate about the education piece to the point that I developed a drug discovery and development course for undergrads. And I've taught that course at Connecticut College a couple of times. Wow. When I was doing um, my drug development certificate, one of my professors had us, um, had us reading this book on the side, The Great Influenza. It's a book about the, the Spanish flu, mm-hmm. the last pandemic. And so I actually reached out to him when all of this started. He's like, I'm like, I'm thinking about you so much. And he's like, oh, I love it when students reach out. <laughs> uh, it, people talk about the flu of 1918 as if it only lasted that year. Mm. How long did it last? I need to educate myself. I know it Two lasted for what, three? Two to three. So depending on where in the world you were and what city you were in, right? So different cities. So for example, New York City, right? Mm-hmm. It's basically, it's on its way down, it seems to be. So if everything goes well in terms of distancing and strategic opening, they might continue to see decreases in their hospitalizations and decreases in the number of new cases diagnosed. But that doesn't mean in, 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 19, in the last pandemic, there were cities that had a curve that had two peaks. There were cities that had one peak. There were cities that were flat. But overall, that pandemic, it took two years overall. So there was a quote-unquote new normal. Mm-hmm. So you will see pictures of people walking around on the streets on masks. Like, we're going to be seeing the pictures of ourselves in masks in yeah. the future. Um, because it became the norm. You could get arrested in some parts of the U.S. for not wearing a mask during that pandemic and and what a difference right here we're protesting Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) but there were there there, this this book had a lot of historical images and there were parts of the u.s that they said you know you can get you can get fined and arrested for spitting Mm -hmm. on the street (laughs) you could get fined and arrested for not wearing a mask can you tell me the name of that book also Um, the, the great influenza well, right. this has been fun. Yeah, <laughs> we have to we have to chat again just to chat, because um, clearly we haven't finished. <laughs> we do need to go. Yes. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank, thank you for coming to, to subscribing to the podcast. <laughs> just wow. I hope that it was as helpful for you to pick my cousin's brain as it was for me. I learned so much about what it actually means for a virus to jump, as well as how long it takes for a medication to 
get to market, what the research is behind that, and um, kind of more of what to expect in the midst of this pandemic. Hope it was helpful for you too. We are only at the halfway mark. We've got much more to come. Another physician, we've got a social worker who tells us what it's like for individuals who are not able to stay with their families, as well as a priest. So don't miss an episode. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to rate and subscribe to At The Same Time on whatever platform you use to get your podcasts. That way, you won't miss a single episode. We'd love for you to connect with us online. Our website is sametimepod.fireside.fm. You can also follow us on Twitter, at sametimepod. Music by purpleplanet.com. Copyright 2020 by Nikel Rogers Wood, PhD, and Elsa Rogers, PhD.